Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. Exactly one year ago today, January 6, 2021, a day that will live in infamy in this nation's history. Hey everybody, Mike Leon here from the show. Thank you for joining us for this special presentation of Can We Please Talk. In this episode, we're going to be playing some clips of some of the guests that have come on this program to talk about the events of January 6th, some with firsthand experience as to some of the events, some that were in D.C. that day, but also people that have been covering the subsequent arrest trials, everything that's unfolding with the select committee that's investigating January 6th. So enjoy this special presentation of our program. The Bible tells us that we shall know the truth, and the truth shall make us free. We shall know the truth. Well, here is the God's truth about January 6, 2021. Close your eyes. Go back to that day. What do you see? Rioters rampaging, waving for the first time inside this capital. Confederate flag that symbolized the cause to destroy America, to rip us apart. Even during the Civil War, that never, ever happened. But it happened here in 2021. What else do you see? A mob breaking windows, kicking in doors, breaching the Capitol. American flags on poles being used as weapons, as spears. Fire stingers being thrown at the heads of police officers. A crowd that professes their love for law enforcement assaulted 
those police officers, dragged them, sprayed them, stomped on them. Over 140 police officers were injured. We all heard the police officers who were there that day testify to what happened. One officer called it, quote, a mid medieval battle, and that he was more afraid that day than he was fighting the war in Iraq. They've repeatedly asked since that day, how dare anyone, anyone, diminish, belittle, or deny the hell they were put through? We saw with our own eyes, rioters menaced these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. What did we not see? We didn't see a former president who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television and doing nothing for hours as police were assaulted lives at risk, the nation's capital under siege. As you said, uh, uh, Mike, uh, I, I've spent a lot of my academic career studying the Civil War, and particularly the Reconstruction period that came right after. And, um, you know, I was like millions of people watching these events unfold on TV on January 6th and more and more kind of shocked and alarmed at what was happening. But as commentators was saying, you know, oh, this is not us, or this has never happened before, this is not, I, I yelled at the TV, you know, <laughs> said, no, that's not true, this has happened before, we have seen this before, nobody alive today, but if you know American history in the Reconstruction period, you have seen mobs of overthrowing democratically elected in biracial governments. This happened in Reconstruction and afterwards. It's not unprecedented in our history. The Wilmington riot, 1898 in uh, North Carolina, where a duly elected biracial government was just a coup d'etat, evicted by a white supremacist mob and driven out of office and new people took over the city or go back into Reconstruction, the Colfax massacre much more violent than what we saw. Dozens of African-American militia members were killed by armed whites uh, taking over the government of Grant Parish, uh, Louisiana, the White League uprising in 1874 in uh, New Orleans, trying to overthrow the elected government of Louisiana. In other words, uh, we've seen this. We've seen this toxic brew of white supremacy, of hostility to actual democracy, and willingness to just use force to uh, to gain your political aims. You know, this kind of domestic terrorism has existed at many points in American history. In Reconstruction, it was the Ku Klux Klan, the White League, groups like that. Um, so this is part of the American tradition. It's not the only American tradition. You know, what struck me was on that one day, we saw these events, but that morning we saw the certification or the announcement that these two new senators had been elected in Georgia, a black man and a Jewish man. And if you know the history of Georgia, you'd have to say that's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, a state that was central to the slave system, central to the uh, lost cause later on, 
uh, anti-Semitism, very powerful there. Um, so, you know, the historian can delineate historical precedents, but we are not imprisoned by history. People can change, you know, and that's what that election in Georgia suggested, even while all these other people are going in the completely opposite direction. Uh, obviously, it was one of the darkest days in this country's history, and it says a lot for this country, which has had a lot of dark days, uh, especially when it's come to the disenfranchised. Um, I never thought I'd see something like that happen, uh, especially uh, spearheaded by the leader of this country <laughs> uh, to basically uh, sick his supporters on not only democracy, but also on the people who are in office to serve and help us as a nation. Um, this man has done nothing but divide over the last four years. Uh, I'm talking about Trump, obviously. I can't even call him President Trump. And yes, I did serve in the military and I know I'm supposed to respect the, uh, the office of the presidency, but I can't respect him uh, because this man has done nothing but try and tear this nation apart. I, I fought to make this country the United States of America and it's been anything but with him. So uh, what I saw there was a, a bunch of ignorant people who are um, brainwashed by a man and, and really feels like they can believe anything he says and he knows that they'll believe anything he says. And he basically started an insurrection, and, uh, almost a coup, uh, to try and take over this country, to try and uh, stop the democracy that we built uh, for so many years in this country. And uh, I'm just happy that finally, you know, people are taking steps and there's more and more people starting to come to the realization of who he is. Not enough Republicans still, because only 10 voted to impeach him still in the, in, the, in the House. And that's still not enough. And people are still making excuses for him. But hopefully, we'll make more and more progress and make this country the, the country we want it to be. I certainly think that domestic terrorism has been on the rise uh, for several years now. And I think the threat of you know, extremists uh, here in the homeland I know we've, you know, we've really focused overseas and on the global war on terror post 9-11. And I think we've made a lot of progress and headway there in terms of how we look at the problem, how we screen and vet people um, and tracking these kind of global networks. But the homegrown uh, radicalization that we're seeing happen on our own home soil is dangerous. And it's a harder, it's a, it's a harder problem, I would say, and a bigger challenge because you're going to have to look at it from a lens of what causes radicalization, radicalization, where does it emerge, um, how these networks, you know, and these individuals are being recruited and radicalized and all the challenges that come with that, you know, on where they're talking to each other um, on social media, you deal with all sorts of First Amendment rights and freedom of speech when you start to look at that too. So it's really a complex problem. And I would say the other challenge right now is really the threat of disinformation that is out there. And that I think is a big contributor to what things like the QAnon movement, um, some of the you know more disinformation campaigns on the pandemic that still still create division and confusion and danger to the American public. I think still today in terms of COVID and the vaccines and all of that. And I think it's a challenge that I think we're going to be facing uh, for years to come. So I think that the context of this is just important to remember that this is such a massive investigation. It's just enormous. And it really beats anything that the FBI has ever done before in terms of the scope and the number of, of 
targets in this investigation. It really is just completely unprecedented. Um, and that's put a lot of strain on both the FBI and on the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., uh, which is now working with a lot of U.S. Attorney's Offices around the country to sort of supplement their work because they really need the resources in order to be able to take up all of these cases. So it's really just an enormous, enormous effort. Um, at the moment, we're above 570 arrests. Um, and I think, you know, hundreds more to come. It's sort of to be determined, I think, where we're ultimately going to fall on this. Um, you know, personally, I know of a number of cases that are in the works. Um, there's some serious felony cases that are being uh, pursued at the moment. Um, but the FBI does take a little bit, it takes a little bit of time for some of these cases to come together. And more than I think often is necessary or that the sleuths are sort of comfortable with because there's just such a, there's such a delay in a lot of these cases, even though um, there's, you know, all the information that you need is there. And it's basically because of the bureaucracy. There's just an enormous amount um, of bureaucracy that goes into these cases, um, enormous amount of effort that has to happen behind the scenes. And they're just really strained at the moment. I'll, I'll go a step further. They're, they're stretched to the max. All but one of the 56 FBI field, field offices in this country are engaged in this investigation, and it is very much ongoing. We are approaching 700 defendants already, and my sources tell me, and Scott McFarland has confirmed, we're nowhere near done. Um, you may you may easily see a couple hundred or 300. We, we may hit a thousand defendants before this is all over. And what does that look like in the average FBI field office? It looks like, hey, you might be on the organized crime squad or you might be on the mortgage fraud or healthcare fraud squad, but guess what? You're working January 6th and you're doing these arrests, you're doing these interviews, it's coordinated out of headquarters in Washington. And that coordination, you know, Scott McFarland raises a great point. He, by mistake, I think, DOJ released an FBI interview report on one of the Oath Keepers that was arrested and Scott grabbed it and saw it. And it, it showed that they asked this Oath Keeper, have you had any contact or know anyone in the Congress or a congressional staffer? That was a clue that part of this coordination out of headquarters is an establishment of kind of template questions that all the field officers need to ask of, of the, the folks getting arrested. And if that's true, and one of those is ask about their knowledge or, or affiliation with anybody in Congress, that's a clue that they are indeed looking up the chain for the role of any uh, Congress, congressional members or staffers. Um, we know surveillance is going on. He sees uh, Scott has seen in the charging documents evidence of, of drone surveillance, physical surveillance, um, massive, massive digital data being seized. Imagine if you're looking at a thousand people and you've got all of their cell phone records, their computer uh, records, their devices, all of these knuckleheads were, were, were recording themselves on their cell phones before, after, posting live. Um, and it is a mountain of data that has to be processed. And they've spread that throughout the FBI in all the regional computer forensic laboratories. It is overwhelming. And it's why you're seeing it take so long to get these people before the courts. The, the thing about being stretched to the max for the justice system is some of them are, are starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, they're not ready yet. I'm not going to waive the Speedy Trial Act. I want to go to court now. I'm ready now. I'll represent myself. Take me now. 
And the judge has had to say, hey, we're not ready for you yet. The evidence isn't here yet. They're grabbing prosecutors from the West Coast for these people. They're grabbing federal public defenders from places like Nevada and, uh, and the Pacific Northwest and Puerto Rico. We're not ready for you yet. And, and, and the question is, what happens? Does the system crash if they all say, take me now, I, I'm not waiving my speedy trial rights? I had seen a lot of similarities with the radicalism that I had covered overseas, which is that there generally is kind of like a little bit of a triangle uh, of where Roseanne and the profiles of people that I've seen in the past really genuinely fit in, which was there are people who have suffered, um, meaning they have been down on their luck. They've had some uh, problems, perhaps uh, either personal tragedies that they had to overcome or challenges that they had to overcome. And that puts them in a position of disadvantage. There is disinformation that they're constantly being bombarded with, that they are subject to. And then there is this element of demagoguery. And when you see that in the context of overseas, the demagogues, the people who would say to these destitute people or the, the, the people that are down on their luck, hey, follow me, let's go and fix this. We can solve the problems and all of the ills of your society by attacking Americans, by killing the infidels, by blowing up, uh, you know, whatever we needed to. And so when they can get people warped into that men mentality, these demagogues can exploit the vulnerability of certain people and get them to follow the disinformation they put out there. And so in the context of Roseanne in the, in the United States, the disinformation was there as we explored in the, in the podcast. Um, Roseanne was somebody who struggled with personal addiction and had all kinds of uh, personal challenges in her life at some point. And so it made her vulnerable to conspiracy theories and disinformation. And what was new, I think, in this particular context was Donald Trump, who for the most part, functioned as a demagogue for these people. He exploited their vulnerabilities and said to them, if you follow me and do what I tell you, we can fix the society's ills. We can save our democracy. We can save the children part of the conspiracy theory that they believed in. And so that was a bit of a, um, a similarity in the pattern that I saw between, between what I did overseas and, and what I did on this story with Preeti.